something as devastating as what's happening um, in America right now with the immigrants, you have to be as loud as you can. The fear for the immigrant community is exponential now. There is a growing humanitarian and security crisis. America is a nation of immigrants. That's our strength. Unless you are one of the first Americans, unless you are a native American, somebody somewhere in your past showed up from someplace else. And they didn't always have papers. Something that I felt a lot while doing this march is family. I feel like I've known them all my life. The lives of 690,000 people are in limbo this morning as the debate over the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, plays out at the Supreme Court. 9,000 of those recipients work in schools. We'll flood the streets with justice. We'll flood the streets with justice. We are freedom. I love this country. I love democracy. I love the fact that I can stand here and talk to you guys today without being persecuted. Hello and welcome to Immigration and Democracy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Alsop. In this series, we'll bring you fresh knowledge and insights from the team at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard, led by our director, Professor Roberto Gonzalez, and featuring voices from the field. Join us as we get to know our neighbours through their stories. Today we talk to Carla Cornejo Villavicencio and Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. These are two young people with published memoirs. We brought them together to discuss what's it like to write memoir at such a young age? What does it mean to be undocumented and come of age in the United States? And how does it feel to be recognized in a country that long denied your very existence? So today we're talking about undocumented migration. At the Immigration Initiative at Harvard, we don't use the word illegal, although we know some people do. We believe that that stigmatizing language and that nobody is illegal. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to be talking about undocumented individuals and undocumented migration. Both Carla and Marcelo grew up without papers or citizenship in the US, and this is a condition that is known as being undocumented. Many of the young people who grew up in the US without papers, like Carla and Marcelo, arrived with their families as children. Carla and Marcelo were both five when they arrived. Others were born here, and home for almost all of them is here. It's tricky to work out the numbers, but it's estimated that there are over 1 million children living without documents in the United States. And there's an important follow-up to this number, because there are another 1 million or so young people who came as children who are now adults, those like Carla and Marcelo. It's an important tie-in, and it's one that often gets lost because many of us freeze these young people in a Peter Pan kind of childhood. But of course, we all grow up, and this brings new challenges. Around 4.5 million of some 10.5 million or so people who are living in the US without papers are aged under 30. You've probably heard of the word dreamers. It's often used to talk about the undocumented student movement, the campaign for the rights of undocumented young people who've grown up in the US. Their declaration of undocumented and unafraid has become the battle cry of one of the most powerful social movements of our time. I remember being back in the UK and hearing about the Dreamers and being really, really inspired. In fact, it was one of the main reasons I got involved in supporting undocumented young people in the UK, my native country. So what was it all about? Starting in the early 2000s, millions of young people got together in the United States. They took on university presidents, business leaders, elected officials and the broader American public, 
compelling them to listen to their stories and to take action to grant them some security over their futures. 2001 saw some progress with the introduction of the DREAM Act, which offered some limited protections. Then, following a whole host of coordinated civil disobedience and pressure on members of Congress, 2012 saw the implementation of DACA, which stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This program was made by an administrative action by President Obama. It was a big win. But no, it wasn't perfect. It was temporary and partial, and many people didn't qualify. But what do we know? To date, under this program, more than 814,000 young people have been able to make their lives in the country they call home. That's pretty awesome. The policy recently hit the headlines as President Trump did his best to overturn it. This was something the Supreme Court ruled to be unlawful in June this year. For now, the future of the Dreamers remains uncertain. In this episode, we talked to Carla and Marcelo about their memoirs and memories of growing up with their families in what our director, Roberto Gonzalez, calls a state of protracted limbo. And what were some of the opportunities and obstacles that they faced in that turbulent climate? Without papers, everyday things become difficult. Learning to drive, borrowing a library book, getting into school, living in constant fear that a parent could be detained and deported if they do so much as to accidentally miss a stop sign. To situate ourselves in their world, we're going to kick off with a couple of excerpts from the books of Carla and Marcelo. Some of this was excerpted in a piece for This American Life, and they called to fact check this with my mom. (laughs) um, (laughs) She was really funny about it. Okay, so if you ask my mother where she's from, she's 100% going to say she's from the kingdom of God, because she does not like to say that she's from Ecuador, Ecuador being one of the few South American countries that has not especially outdone itself on the international stage. Magical realism basically skipped over it, as did the military dictatorship craze of the 1970s and 1980s. Plus, there are no world-famous Ecuadorians to speak of other than the fool who housed Julian Assange at the embassy in London, the president, and Christina Aguilera's father, who was a domestic abuser. If you ask my father where he is from, he will definitely say Ecuador, because he is sentimental about the country for reasons he is working out in therapy. But if you push them, I mean really push them, they're both going to say they're from New York. If you ask them if they feel American, because you're a little narc who wants to prove your blood runs red, white, and blue, they're going to say, no, we feel like New Yorkers. We really do, too. My family has lived in Brooklyn and Queens a combined 97 years. My dad drove a cab back when East New York was still gang country, and he had to fold his body into a little origami swan and hide under his steering wheel during crossfires in the middle of the day while he ate a jumbo slice of pizza. Times have changed, but my parents haven't. My dad sees struggling bodegas and he says they're fronts. For what? Money laundering. For whom? The mob. My mom wants my brother and me to wear pastels all year round to avoid being seen as taking sides in the little tiff between the bloods and the crypts. My parents are New Yorkers to the core. Despite how close we are, we've talked very little about their first days in New York or about their decision to choose New York or even the United States as a destination. It's not that I haven't asked my parents why they came to the United States. It's that the answer isn't as morally satisfying as most people's answers are. A decapitated family member, famine. And I never pressed them for more details because I didn't want to apply pressure on a bruise. The story, as far as I know, it goes something like this. My parents had just gotten married in Ecuador and their small auto body business was not doing well. Then my dad got into a car crash where he broke his jaw 
and they had to borrow money from my father's family, who are bad, greedy people. The idea of coming to America to work for a year to make just enough money to pay off the debt came up, and it seemed like a good idea. My father's family asked to keep me, being months old at the time, as collateral. And that's what my parents did. That's about as much as I know. You may be wondering why my parents agreed to leave me as an economic assurance, but the truth is I have not had this conversation with them. I've never thought about it enough to ask. The truth is that if I was a young mother, if I was me as a young mother, unparented, ambitious, at my sexual prime, I think I would be thrilled to leave my child for exactly a year, as I said it would be, which is what the plan was. I never had to forgive my mom. When we weren't watching movies that were dubbed into Spanish and always lagged behind the actor's mouth a little, we prepared for my father's interview. I sat across the bed from my dad and pretended to be the interviewer. Good morning, Mr. Hernandez. How are you doing? When was the last time you were in the U.S.? What was the reason for your departure? Do you understand the gravity of your crime? How many years had you lived in the U.S.? Do you have a family? And where are they? Are any of them permanent residents or citizens? It went on like that for hours. We simply wanted to ensure he remembered exact dates and times of arrivals, departures, and residencies so that there wouldn't be any discrepancies in the records. All he needed to do was state the facts. We were afraid that any stumbling could be misinterpreted as a lie. I repeated his timeline to him over and over as if he hadn't lived it himself and asked him to say it back. I could tell that he was starting to get annoyed. I wasn't sure if I would be able to enter with him or not. What could I add to his case anyways? In the background was a black and white movie from Mexico's golden age of cinema. My father loved those movies. They romanticized the ranchero, the vaquero, the hombre my father always thought himself to be. They provided all that was good in the world for him, as well as all that was bad. The women like Maria Felix and Dolores del Rio always had long and gloomy faces. Their sad eyes always looked slightly away as they sang atop a balcony, dimly lit by the moon. The men like Jorge Negrete and Pedro Infante were well-built, handsome, and they too could sing. They would break into song for any reason. Their songs were an extension of this general sadness. They too looked away from the camera. Tequila was always on the table. I didn't like questioning Napa the way I had been questioned because I didn't want to assume that role. Even if we were just pretending, I didn't want him to apologize. I wanted them to apologize for his solitude. For all of those years, my mother was forced to work overtime and take up an extra job to raise us by herself. Why were we the ones who needed to apologize? I'm sorry, Appa, I wanted to say in the interviewer's voice. For what, he would say. I don't know, maybe for this, for having to be here, for not being here sooner. I never said any of this. I felt like everything was my fault, even things that happened before I was born. I'm sorry, great-grandfather Leon, for what they did to you. I'm sorry, baby Manuel, that it took so long for them to believe you were dying. A friend once told me, any time we apologized, we could instead turn it into gratitude. 
so that instead of saying, I'm sorry, I'm late, we could say, thank you for your patience. In my head, the conversation between me and my dad continued like this. I'm sorry you were deported, Abba, which meant thank you for letting your sons be raised by their mother. I'm sorry we never called you. Thank you for understanding that our Spanish was starting to fade and we didn't want to embarrass ourselves in front of you or for you to think that the distance between us was more than just miles. I'm sorry we never came back to you and that you were alone. Thank you for being proud that I went to college instead. Thank you for growing a beautiful garden. I'm sorry things never went as you planned. Thank you for letting us live in surprise. These are not easy stories. They're family stories, entangled with trauma. They talk with brutal honesty about the things that come at a cost to ourselves. Their vantage points are unique, but their stories have much in common. Originally from Ecuador, Carla was one of the first undocumented young people to graduate from Harvard University, and she's now a PhD student at Yale. But as she's keen to point out, she's far from a poster girl of the American dream. In a review of her recent book, The Undocumented Americans, the New York Times calls her work subversive, chilling, and rare. Born in Mexico, Marcelo grew up in the California Central Valley. He's a poet, essayist, translator, and immigration advocate, and his work has been recognized with multiple awards. Vanity Fair writes of his recent memoir, Children of the Land, that his work continually subverts the idea that movement means improvement, that the immigrant should only ever move in one direction, to a better place, a safer place, one more prosperous and secure. Today, it's a huge pleasure to have Carla and Marcelo both here with us. As a writer, we can only imagine how exciting it must feel to get your hands on those first prints, except that wasn't how it was for Carla and Marcelo. Writing this book for me was not a fun experience. I didn't enjoy it. I don't know why I did it. When it came, you know, uh, in like a box, I, I didn't open it at first. I was ambivalent. It was painful to hear. But as the conversation with Carla and Marcelo went on, it became clear that opening that box meant opening the rawest and most vulnerable parts of themselves. There's so much there. Let's unpack it together. I think when you're young, when you're like a young writer, I don't mean like your current age, I mean like the age in which you start your experience as a writer. As any artist, you create your art against things, or at least I did, because I, you know, I was like contrarian, even though I had always like loved authority and, you know, I had a complicated relationship with authority. I don't like it when immigrants are written about in these three ways. And so what I would do is I would write about immigrants in these ways. I don't know if you would relate, Marcelo, but like in academic environments, there's just a lot of talk mm-hmm. and there's just a lot of theorizing about like mm-hmm. what's wrong in books mm-hmm. and what's like problematic in books and what artists do wrong. It's just kind of stays at that level. It kind of stays in the theoretical. My book is part memoir, part reporting. I would say it's about 60% reporting and 40% memoir. And I was sort of really inspired by the Latin American genre of testimonio. And I was inspired by hip hop and the way that you can kind of tell a community story through a very specific song 
a very specific, you know, piece of yourself. How do you talk about survivor's guilt? And how do you talk about your community that you're trying to like fit and save and fit inside a hotel? So that's why I chose this hybrid. I wanted to talk about the stories of undocumented people because I felt that journalism that I had read and ethnographies that I had read in graduate school had sort of misrepresented us and had written about us in a way that didn't feel representationally true to me. And I genuinely thought I could do better. And I wanted to do something that I thought would be cool literarily. The personal part came naturally because I am an essayist. Anything that I've written, I've always used the personal voice to write. I think mostly everything that I've written about immigration, I've written in the first person. So it was just a natural fit. I like that, uh, Carly, you added a percentage because for me, it's also a hybrid piece, but the hybrid would be 50-50, if not like 60-40. 60% memoir, 40% like abstract lyrical wisps of memory that talk about the further past and then longer-ish personal essays that detail like the more more recent past up until the present. And for me, I've been surprised at what I've heard people say about like the form because throughout my life, I've found myself oftentimes very confused in all senses of the matter, of the word, confused by my memories, confused by my, the situations around me. And so I felt very insecure about writing about anybody else but me. Like my brother doesn't appear in the book at all. And he was right there next to me with me, you know, living through all of this. Partly that was a choice because he's a very private person. So I respected that. But the other part too was I was just terrified of the doubts that I had about not the experiences, but how I reacted to them or how I felt about them or how they impacted me. The way that I put it together, a narrative fragmented by these points of memory that kind of just come in and then leave, I think was the best way for me to replicate how it was that I experienced the past and its relationship to the present. So if in many ways memoir is this deeply personal journey, this bridging of the past and the present, who and what is this writing really for? You know, at first I was writing without thinking of an audience. I was just writing. I was just writing. And I had no idea. I mean, I I was used to writing essays where either I was writing for an editor that I had a personal relationship with. So I was writing for the editor or I was writing with an idea of an audience in mind, which is not to say that I was writing for an audience. I think when you're young, you're really used to writing against things. And I definitely had an idea of what I was writing against when I started this book. I didn't really have a clear idea of what my voice was going to be. The voice that I use in my essays is this like 99 cent store Joan Didion voice. um, And it just wasn't really going to work for this book. So when I started writing, first of all, the reporting stuff, I was writing like a book report in the fourth grade. It was just very, (laughs) it was not good. It didn't have any voice whatsoever. Like it sounded like a Wikipedia article written by a bot. You have to, at some point, stop just writing or or painting or like creating against something and just like carve out your own space and say like, this is what my voice sounds like. 
And this is what my theory of art is. And this is what my theory of representation is. This is what my theory of beauty is, or this is what my theory of living a meaningful life is. And I think all of that is related. I think coming to terms with who I was as a writer had a lot to do with my coming to terms with my own trauma that because I was abandoned when I was a child, it is to say that I have these issues now as an adult. And so I had just like not dealt with any of this stuff. I had just been on this path, like social mobility, my career and taking care of my family and taking care of as many people as possible. And so of course I couldn't write about it. And so it was just like, it was not good. And so I went through many drafts where it was like, some of it was just straight up bloodletting. And then some of it was really stiff. Sentences like, I suppose I was abandoned, but I am fine. And then the next paragraph was like, and then I went to Flint. And then I just, I imagined my book was going to be read by white women who were going to feel inspired by it. Because I was this poster child of like the American dream. And I was very angry. And so I went through like maybe eight versions of my introduction, where at first I was like, listen up, white people. And my editor, Chris Jackson, (laughs) he was like, you need to stop. And um, I eventually landed on a voice that felt true to the book, but it's just true to the book. Like, this is not a voice that I generally use for my essays. There was a lot of stuff about animals in the book that um, my editor asked me to cut. And then then this was just like a disagreement that we had where undocumented immigrants are compared to animals. And I am someone who do not really relate to human beings. And, And I find a lot of comfort in animals. And I wrote about it. And some of it was metaphor that was taken a little bit too far. Some of it has been taken and adapted into some of my most beloved pieces by Latinx readers comparing it, you know, immigrants to animals that can survive in like inhospitable climates and stuff. I think in the context of this book, it was better that we cut the animal stuff. So you're writing in this space that is populated with these various narratives, these stereotypes about about immigrants and about their families. How do you find an authentic voice within that? Young people have really gravitated towards my book. I was going through this with my parents when I was writing this book, and I realized, like, this whole American dream thing, the graduation caps, you know, children of immigrants, like, say, like, they crossed the border so I could graduate or whatever. You can never free yourselves from them. And, like, you're tied to them with obligation and gratitude and pity. And then I, like, started to write the book in a way that was, like, Let's emancipate ourselves from our parents where we still love them. We still take care of them. We still whatever. But like, we are not subjugated Mm -hmm. by what intergenerational trauma looks like in migrant families. And a lot of children of immigrants have reached out to me and been like, this is what it looks like in my family too. You know, it looks like this in a lot of families. And I think a lot of us who belong to marginalized groups who have survived various things and who deal with the survivor's guilt have heard this at some point or another, that like you were mm-hmm. spared because you were going to be a witness and you were going to tell these stories. And like Primo Levi says that that sounded monstrous to him. And I think a lot of us can call that bullshit. I think James mm-hmm. Baldwin was like, well, I believed it was my job to bear witness, but obviously he was haunted by that. 
I couldn't write this book until I was ready to confront what it meant to be in that position, to be able to write these stories, to be able to make money writing about undocumented people. And unless I dealt with those things head on, I mean, I was going to keep writing like a bot. You just reminded me, Carla, I mean, everything you just said, like literally was point by point. It's just funny how few people in my circles I can talk with and I don't have to explain certain things. So like talking about theory and uh, theory's role, like with activism in the indocumented communities, I could talk to like two friends about that, but not necessarily like my sister or my brother or like an uncle. I can talk with, there's like a Venn diagram here and there. But for me, I'm trying to remember and I seem to think that I had a lot less anxiety and depression before I started to like come to terms with being undocumented with what it meant to you know tell people and how to see myself in, in those contexts. Maybe it's just because the onset of like, um, I was recently diagnosed with bipolar disorder and that just happens to be most pronounced like towards the late 20s when I started to get like the first symptoms. But um, there was a time while I was writing the book where there was part of me after having a really intense conversation with my brother about how he wasn't okay with the book and never would be, I kind of just wanted it to go away, to be published. Nobody write a review about it. Nobody talk about it. And me move on with my life and stop thinking about, uh, about writing as my primary source of attention uh, financial um, stability. I uh, kind of wanted to step aside, take up carpentry. Um, what did your brother say about your book? Um, he has a very different relationship with my dad than I mm. do. It's similar, mm-hmm. but he's 11 years older than me. And mm. my life mirrors his exactly, mm-hmm. except the fact that my dad was present in his and was absent in mine. And so even though, you know, my dad was very abusive, we both have spent our entire lives. And also he has a personality disorder. We have spent most of our lives trying to get his approval. And when he read briefly what I wrote about him, he, I think, was confronting his feelings about those conflicting feelings that he also um, knew he was harmed by our father, but also didn't know what to do with the affection that he also felt. Mm-hmm. And for me, I just, I just had to not deal with it and just block my dad's number from my phone. You know, I, um, my book is coming out next year in Spanish, I think. I know my parents are going to read it. And my parents are both still in my life. In a way, you know, um, we text every day. They don't parent me. You know, they haven't parented me since I was like 10 years old. My mom is going to react by being upset that I quote unquote, you know, like forgive my father at the end for leaving the family and for being abusive. Um, Even though the book is a snapshot in time and Mm -hmm. the conclusion was finished like two years ago or something. And um, the way I feel about my father changes hourly. There are those who would say that at the heart of every immigrant story is a family story, and within families, lives and stories and languages overlap. 
The struggle between the obligation to protect our families and writing honestly about what happened is not easy. Like many foreign-born writers, writing is not just about crossing places, but about crossing languages too. I mean, I can't write in Spanish. I mean, I can, but my Spanish is like church Spanish. It's like parent Spanish. It's like, see, mommy, bendición, mommy. Like, my influences in English are like Gertrude Stein, like Eileen Miles, like James Joyce. Like, I can't write in Spanish. I read um, Garcia Marquez's books in English. (laughs) And I read like the short ones, like Chronicle of a Death Foretold. I read those in Spanish because they were short. When I learned English, I also came here when I was five or so. I learned English, like I took to it like an oil spill. It was just my language. And it was like, it's the language I think in. It's the language I pray in. It's the language I like have panic attacks in. It's the language I like fight in. It's the language I think in. And it's the language I write in. I can't write in Spanish. I wrote an op-ed for El Diario in New York the other day. And I, I did it by translate, by writing it in English first and then translating it into Spanish. I can't write in Spanish. Language is language, like whatever. Like my mom, like when my mom is angry, she says like, fuck, you know, you know like what, like she will say, she doesn't speak English. My parents will say, they've been here 30 years. They're like, don't speak English. Once when they were still together, my partner came over to the house that's his own story my parents be okay with me being gay like my partner came over to the house and like I um fell asleep because in order to handle my parents when they were together I would have to take a clonopin and like a shot of vodka and then I could handle them now I'm soberish and like on a healing journey and also they I separated them but I was sleeping I was taking a nap and usually I would have to translate all of my parents interactions with my partner Talia but this time I was asleep and my brother, who is 10 years younger than me, he is not good at Spanish. He is not good at Spanish. And my parents spilled the tea. Like they told Talia about my entire childhood in English, in like perfect English, <laughs> because, I, because I was not there to translate for them. Language is just this like intoxicating, bizarre little thing where like my parents have it when I am not there. And where, like, if someone is racist toward my father and my father wants to spit at them <laughs> and I have a fight with them, <laughs> which is going to get him killed, as I've always told him, um, he magically knows English. Mm-hmm. And, like, um, my mom needs to tell Talia that, like, I grew up not doing chores. She magically knows English. And I magically learned English at, like, age five. And I think I was in ESL for, like, nine months. I wonder who my translator is going to be, though. I'm really excited to see my book in Spanish. I mean, yeah, same. I English was not my first language, but it is my primary language. And I write about that a little in the book about like that transition and giving up one for the other, which wasn't, I was what, like five. So it wasn't like a conscious choice. One thing aside, somebody told me, he's like, oh yeah, you speak a provincial Spanish. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, that got me really mad. But um my mom, after, you know, 30 plus years in the country, she never had time to do anything but work. Literally, literally nothing but work, not even go to the mall, like her entire paycheck went to rent and groceries, raising three boys. And now that she's here, now that she doesn't work, now that she doesn't have to, she's doing everything. She's taking computing classes, she's learning English, and she is translating my book into Spanish. 
and I am I'm losing my shit at how good it is like I thought I knew Spanish like just conversationally she knows like literary Spanish that I had no idea she did and and she, she has a second grade education you know formal education she's just has always been just curious and has always been really smart now that she's has leisure time she's translating my whole ass book this is something you know that wasn't imaginable even three four years ago Will that be published? I'm telling her that I'm going to send it to my publisher. Like, it's that good to where, like, I'm not going to, she's like, but you, you have to check it, right? I'm like, no, I can't. Cause then it'll be, I will want to make changes too. So it can't be me. Like it has to be a hundred percent you. And um, yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to definitely send it to my publisher. Well, if we want an update on that, maybe we should interview your mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be great. And so guys, kind of last question, really, what, what's next? you know, establishing boundaries with my parents and, um, you know, taking care of myself, like not really going on Twitter and addressing like reading books about chronic trauma and complex PTSD. And obviously really inspired by speaking to Roberto Gonzalez, right? Where he was the first person that kind of alerted me to the fact that these symptoms that I was having was not, I was not like the the lone sheep in the flock. Look, I don't know. This is the first time in my life where I've acknowledged that I have chronic trauma and, you know, I'm reading these books that Talia got me years ago and I'm like crying for the first time, like when I was little and I used to cry. My parents got very angry when I cried. It was considered a sign of weakness. It was considered a character flaw. It made me get yelled at even more, but I do remember that when my brother was born, when I was 10 years old, um, and he, when he became old enough to be a person, like when he was like five years old, six years old, which means I would have been about 15 or 16, he started comforting me. If you look now, my brother is different from me. He's very different from me. He's still a Jehovah's Witness, but I kind of helped raise him. You know, I was 10 years older. I would read to him and we would watch all these things together. And part of it was because he was he spent so much time in my room comforting me. And I think that's um, part of how intergenerational trauma is like, the chains are broken, you know? My brother started comforting me. And I remembered that, that, you know, the story isn't just like as sad as I thought it was. And I can comfort myself now. I know how to comfort myself now. And when my brother needs me now, he's uh, just turned 21. I can come to his help. And that gives me a lot of hope. And so um, I'm also going to spend time to work on feeling less anxious and depressed, but also like having some, you know, like I said, a lot of my memory is gone because of all the antipsychotics I took in my 20s. But um, my brother told me yesterday, uh, I sent him a picture of Talia's lunch, which was a veggie, like like a Boca burger with some cheese on top. He was like, I like veggie burgers. And I was like, when have you had a veggie burger? And he was like, remember when you were a freshman in college and you were a vegetarian, you used to take me to this diner in the village? And I was like, oh yeah, what must have we looked like? Like these two Latino kids, I was 18 and you were eight years old. And we were at this vegetarian diner in the East Village with all of these, like, you know, like these punks. And I just am starting to get a little bit of my memory back with my brother's memories. And that stuff is a little bit hopeful to me. Mm, Yeah, I also don't have a lot of my memory. And my wife recreated pretty much my past from moments that it would 
be a little bit better. I would tell her and then um, years later, I would just forget about it. And she would kind of like, she like reconstructed a lot of my past. We've heard that memoir is in many ways about reconstructing memory. If you're an undocumented writer and you're thinking about writing your story, or perhaps you're thinking about writing something completely different, you might want to check out the UndocuPoets campaign and the UndocuPoet Fellowship. With the UndocuPoets campaign, Marcelo has successfully eliminated citizenship requirements for many major literary prizes in the US. The UndocuPoet Fellowship provides funding to help curb the costs of submissions to journals and contests for undocumented writers. But as we learn, writing is only part of the journey and publication brings new challenges. It kind of brought me solace when I received kind of like a snarky negative review of the book. Somebody said it made them like uncomfortable. And I'm like, good, if you're not uncomfortable by this, there's something probably wrong with how you see other people. And they said there wasn't like a, not a happy ending, but a resolution. Nothing is resolved at the end. And I'm like, because it's not. This is continuous. This is, the book didn't stop and then everything in it stopped as well. Like, no, my mother's living with me right now. You know, she's under asylum proceedings. Nothing really stopped. And so for me, yes, you know, young documented individuals have reached out saying that, you know, they resonated with parts of the book. But it's people who, like older suburban white, um, white women have like reached out saying, you know, the gaps in their understanding of just how complex everything is. I took for granted just how low the bar is set of people's understanding of even the most minor of our experiences. It's literally almost nothing, you know, people even saying to me, well, your mother's been here for 30 years. Why doesn't she just get a green card? And I'm, you know, I just, I don't know what to do with that information. So if anybody does pick up my book, I, I hope that it's, it's somebody who, who can do something and have it make them uncomfortable enough to do something about it. It's always challenging to put something personal out there, but it's also a way of reaching new communities. Before we wrap up, I asked Carla and Marcelo how they came across each other's work. This in itself is an interesting story. Yeah. So if we're being completely honest, I did see that message, but I was completely terrified of responding because I felt exactly the same way, like encountering each other's books and how that that would affect us. Um, I mean, it goes up and down. (laughs) It goes up and down here and there. (laughs) But there are times when I can't even... Well, you should uh, tell you should tell America what what I said to you in the DM. Yeah, the DM was just you were going to read my book, but ambivalent about how to engage with it because because of how you know reading things like this affects us. Yeah. Um, I've been. I did, I did. I did not read your book. I, I started to, and then I was like, "Oh, he has dad stuff. I I can't." So it partly is about like triggers. But at the same time, there were moments when I would just spend hours on YouTube looking at, you know, the most insane shit and just vomiting. But I wanted like to almost uh, go through it again because it was familiar. Yeah, that's self-harm. You know, like I was someone who cut for years and I don't anymore. 
largely thanks to DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, which, you know, encourages you to do other things like putting your hands in like a bowl full of ice and holding onto the ice, you know, because that's mm-hmm. uncomfortable and or dunking your face in ice or taking cold showers, which my father used to make me do as a kid without knowing that this was DBT. Like, yeah, I would also do like self-harmy things like just reading reading comment sections and articles about immigration in local news which is especially bad Uh, yeah and then like try to contact the people have you done that like try to look up their facebook pages yeah and like message them and then like block them this is like straight up self-harm yeah and i would also vomit and then you go to the doctor and you're like i've been vomiting a lot yeah yeah I remember very clearly driving and then that's how I, l- I listened to you first. And I was like, I parked the car and I was just like, sitting there like, oh, wow, uh, I really want this book. Yeah, <laughs> we probably shouldn't read each other if we're going to try. I, I, I agree. I <laughs> agree. <laughs> other people should, say that. people should read our books, but we shouldn't yes. read each other. <laughs> yes. Yes. That feels like a, a great note on which to end the discussion. <laughs> yeah, you're not to, re- uh, to read each other's books but everybody else must go and buy and read your book and here's where you can get your copy Children of the Land is published with HarperCollins and The Undocumented Americans is published by Penguin Random House they're available in all good bookshops and if they're not, ask them to bring them in and while you're in the bookshop another title you might be interested to read is by our very own director Professor Roberto Gonzalez His book, Lives in Limbo, Undocumented and Coming of Age in America, follows his research into the experiences of 150 undocumented young people as they grew up in this turbulent climate, negotiating challenges and opportunities of life without papers. Within today's conversation, we've confronted a lot about trauma and mental health. Using real words to describe very real and painful problems is a huge leap in becoming well. Ariana Aparicio Aguilar, works with us at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard. Here, she shares with us some of the resources that are available to undocumented and immigrant young people. United We Dream has created the Undocu Health Project Emergency Toolkit, which was designed to alleviate not only the stress and anxiety of folks across the nation to keep our families secure, but also to give the reader tools that will allow them to conduct safe zone events and incorporate stress-reducing activities within their community work, and daily lives. We have sections to help you explore the power of breathing through meditation and use it in your group before or after organizing your events. We also have a section called Under Fight or Flight versus Rest and Digest, where you will find the correlations between trauma and the physical effects of stress. Please visit their website at unitedwedream.org. Another great website is immigrantsrising.org who provides a list of scholarships that do not require proof of citizenship or legal residency. They also have guides on beyond DACA, making money, mental health resources, and more. The Socially Responsible Practitioner, Thought Leadership, and News from Adler University has compiled a list of mental health resources through different organizations across the nation. Find them at adler.edu. Additionally, there is my Undocumented Life blog by Dr. Carolina Valdivia, who shares key resources, calls to action, mental health resources, immigration policy updates, and relevant news. Please visit myundocumentedlife.org. Lastly, Immigrant Legal Resource Center, also known as ILRC, 
whose main focus is to educate and assist attorneys and legal advocates in their work to help immigrants. So check them out at ILRC.org. If you liked today's conversation, share it with a friend. Give us a rating or a review. You can send us your comments and questions on Twitter at the handle IIH underscore Harvard. This show was made possible by the Immigration Initiative at Harvard University. It was produced by Ziran Wang and Jennifer Alsop. Music by Ziran Wang. Special thanks to our guests, Carla and Marcelo. Cheers to Ariana on our team. And thank you for tuning in.